In his book, The Art of Understanding Your Mate, Cecil Osborne writes the following. Four-year-old Susie had just been told the story of Snow White for the first time in her life. She could hardly wait to get home from nursery school to tell her mommy. With wide-eyed excitement, she retold the fairy tale to her mother that afternoon. After relating how Prince Charming had arrived on his beautiful white horse and kissed Snow White back to life, Susie asked loudly, And do you know what happened then? Yes, said her mom. They lived happily ever after. No, responded Susie with a frown. They got married. <laughs> On one hand, little Susie is right. Marriage is not a fairy tale. Marriage can be hard. Two sinners live together, and there will be conflict. Someone has joked, marriage is the world's most expensive way of discovering your faults. Every marriage requires work. But on the other hand, little Susie is wrong. Marriage does not deserve a frown. Marriage is God's design. Marriage is good. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. In our passage that we have before us, the Apostle Peter discusses the relationship between a husband and a wife. And while it is no exhaustive treatment of what it means to have a strong biblical marriage, it does provide some invaluable guidance. If God designed marriage, we should listen to what he has to say. And if we apply what he says... Our marriages may not be fairy tales, but I guarantee that they will grow in Christ-likeness and godliness and joy as we seek to follow God's design. Amen? So please let me invite you to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our series on this letter that Peter wrote to a group of churches in Asia Minor. The letter begins, as we've said before, with a wonderful exploration of our glorious salvation, all the riches that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. And then Peter changed gears to talk about our relationships that we enjoy as fellow Christians. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter changes gears again. And then he starts talking about our relationships with non-Christians. And he does this through all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. So a very significant part of this letter is our interactions with non-Christians. So in these sections, Peter discusses relationships with citizens and governments between masters and slaves that was very common in the Roman Empire and husbands and wives. In each instance, kind of the key issue or a key issue is how do Christians act honorably? How do we act honorably in the midst of these relationships where there is often involved dealing with non-believers and sometimes we have to be persecuted for our faith? So how do we have honorable conduct? 
in a watching world. These have been some challenging issues, haven't they? I mean, talking about the government, slavery, marital roles, Peter cannot be accused of sidestepping tough topics. But this is true discipleship as we live out our faith in all of life. Amen? Not just the things that we like, but Christ is Lord of all, and he wants to be Lord of every aspect of our lives. So we've covered two of those areas today. so far. Today we're going to discuss the relation between husbands and wives. Now before we dive in, I think it's good just to remind ourselves of what Scripture teaches about men and women in general before we look at our passage. Scripture teaches their full equality in terms of creation. God honors both men and women with full dignity and their essence and being before him. Genesis 1.27 says at the very beginning, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. So men and women are equal in creation. Men and women are also equal in redemption. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, such a view, the biblical view, was very countercultural in Greco-Roman society. In particular, Jesus elevated the status of women, and the early church continued in that train. One commentator summarizes about their surrounding culture these words. He says, Dominant among the elite was the notion that the woman was by nature inferior to the man. Because she lacked the capacity for reason that the male had, she was ruled rather by her emotions and was as a result given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, wickedness, avarice. She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as a result, it was her place to obey. So scripture does not share that view at all, but upholds the equality and dignity of the sexes in their creation and their redemption. Does everybody see that? That stated, now we also need to turn to the other side of the coin and see where scripture does talk about the distinction in roles between husbands and wives. Okay, so now we're here at 1 Peter chapter 3. If you haven't already found your place, there's 1015. If you're looking at one of the Bibles in front of you. And so Peter first discusses the conduct of wives, and then he will look at the conduct of husbands. So just in case you're thinking he's leaving out the husbands, no, they're going to get their turn. But first, it's the ladies. First, let's read verses 1 and 2 together. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So to start, Peter tells the wives to be subject to their own husbands. They're not subject to men in general, but just to their own husbands. Now, of course, the question rises to the surface, what does submission mean? mean. Submission, I would say, is the glad and willing acceptance of God's authority, God's given authority, 
in different spheres in our lives, but here applied to the husband-wife relationship. Claire Smith wrote a book called God's Good Design, what the Bible really says about men and women. And in a blog, she says these words that I thought were helpful about what submission is. She says, broadly speaking, a wife expresses her submission by respecting her husband and welcoming and accepting his distinctive responsibility to lead and care for her and for the family. Now, I think it's also important here at this point to take a step back and to remind ourselves that when we talk about authority and submission, that this is also a reflection of the Trinity itself where you see authority and submission displayed in the persons of the Godhead. For example, where you see Christ the Son submitting to the Father. I believe submission is just as glorious as authority. We distort it by our sinful tendencies and sinful nature. But at its rock bed purity, it's just as glorious as authority. And also, authority and submission, God has woven into the fabric of human existence. And so if you look across all of the different spheres of our world, you see authority and submission. And all people are expected to honor that, whether it's at all points or various points of our lives and in various ways, whether it's children to parents, whether it's citizens to governments, workers to employers. And so here... Peter applies this principle to wives and their husbands. And it's not just Peter. It's affirmed in places like Ephesians 5, 22, Colossians 3, 18, and Titus 2, 5. And has been pretty much universally the position of the church into the last generation or so. Now, what would this look like practically then in marriage? Well, I would say in my study of Scripture and personal experience, here's where the rubber hits the road. Here is what is the essence of submission in marriage. There will be times when a husband and wife discuss a matter and they don't agree about it. I know that might be news for some of you, but that happens in our household. Parenting, finances, whatever it might be, they should discuss it. They should pray about it. However, if there is still disagreement, this is where I think it is the wife's place to say, I'm going to trust the decision of the husband on this matter. Does not mean that the wife is passive or that she is silent or that she does not make requests of her husband's or anything like that. It simply means a willingness to follow her husband's leadership even when they differ over a matter. Now, let me give a footnote to the wives. There's a lot of amens and stuff going on today. <laughs> I didn't ask for all that, but hey, if you feel that, all right. So the footnote to the wives, one of the most powerful things you can say to your husbands is that you trust him, that you trust him. After you have shared your view, Instead of insisting on your way, say that you trust him as the leader of your home. In most cases, I'm not promising, but in most cases, here is what will happen. Your husband's eyes will get really big and he will pass out. (laughs) 
But all in all seriousness here, I want to be, I want to speak from a man's perspective. If this happens, most men will have this response. It will send a cold chill down his spine. And he will have an increased motivation to do right by you. Whereas if you stand toe to toe and insist on getting your way, he is going to dig in his heels to get his way, even if he is wrong. But if you say, you know what, I'm going to trust your decision in this matter. All of a sudden, he is going to have this wellspring desire to want to serve and to bless his wife. I know no man wants to speak up right now. But I bet most men would say, yes, that's how I feel. That's how I feel. Now, as Peter points out, we need to point this out as well. The wife is ultimately submitting to God, not her husband. In verse 2, it refers to her conduct as respectful and pure. The word respectful literally means fearful. Not fearful of her husband because he's, he's going to say in verse 6 not to fear your husband. He's talking about fearing God. And some of you might say, yeah, Peter talks about that a lot in the letter. He does. It's a running theme in the letter about the importance of fearing God. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, Peter said, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Talking to all of us. Remember when he was talking about submitting to the government? He talked about how we should fear God, right? In the midst of submitting to the government. And so part of fearing God is to submit to authorities in our lives. And so here, wives are to submit to the God-given authority of their husbands. Now, I think Peter is writing to just women, wives in general, but he does have a specific focus, in this case, with wives of non-Christian husbands. Notice how he said there how their husbands do not obey the word, do not obey the gospel. So these are non-Christian husbands, and they are still supposed to submit to their husbands. You say, why would they have to still submit? What does Peter say there, though? That the husband might be won to Christ by your conduct as they see your reverent and pure conduct. Now, I don't think Peter's saying, don't share the gospel at all with them. I think what he's getting at is, yes, share the gospel with them. And if they're open, praise God. Keep having those conversations. But Peter recognized that some husbands, when they hear that message, they don't want to hear it anymore, right? And so they shut down the wife. What Peter is getting at at this point, he's saying, look, at that point, seek to win your husband. Don't keep pressuring him by the conduct of your life. Win him by the conduct of your life. Now, it might take a long time. And yes, we have to be honest that Sometimes it may never happen. Scripture doesn't guarantee it. But I think what Peter recognizes and is almost universally recognized that a wife who will act this way will have an incredible influence on her husband. Lee Strobel is a very well-known writer. Uh, very fascinating story about how he became a Christian. He was a top-notch legal journalist for the Chicago Tribune newspaper. He was a strong atheist, and he uh, did a research project, a long research project with the aim of debunking Christianity. 
And so he went on this long project, and lo and behold, things didn't turn out the way he thought they were going to turn out, because after doing all of this research, he came to the conclusion that Christianity is true. And so he became a believer, and he turned all of that research into a book that's called The Case for Christ. Ever heard of that before? Sold 5 million copies. Very popular book. They actually made it into a, a major movie a few years ago. Let me ask you a question. What was the initial catalyst that stirred his interest in the first place? His wife became a Christian. And at first, he wanted a divorce because he didn't want to be married to a Christian. But he changed over time. And he became interested. He says these words in the book, the, uh, Case for Christ. He says, I was pleasantly surprised, even fascinated, by the fundamental changes in her character, her integrity, and her personal confidence. So Christian wives should seek to win their non-Christian husbands. Talk to them about the Lord if they're open. But if they're not open, don't give up. Keep trying to win them by your conduct. Now, in verses 3 to 4, Peter talks further about their honorable conduct. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So Peter urges the women not to fixate on their external appearance. He mentions how they would braid their hair and wear this gold jewelry and the clothing and so forth. This was really common, particularly of the upper class uh, Roman culture, the women there, probably other women trying to follow in their path and so forth. But Peter, I want to clarify, got to make this clear, okay, right? Peter is not saying uh, that women should not care about their appearance, right? I mean, we just had the rejuvenation here at the, at the school, okay? I mean, at the church, all right? He's not saying that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to uh, look your best. What he is getting at is your focus. What is your preoccupation? And what he's getting at is saying, let's, ladies, wives, focus on your internal beauty, not your external beauty. In particular, he says, a wife should focus on cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. Let me take a second to talk about these words so you understand what he's getting at. When he talks about the word gentle, it means not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Not being impressed, overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Basically, it means humility. Humility. Jesus says the exact, uses the exact same word to describe himself. In the famous passage in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, when Jesus said, I am, what, gentle and lowly in heart. So it means that you have a humble spirit. And the word quiet it's not talking about your personality. People talk, are talkative, some are less talk. That's not what this is getting at. He's not saying a wife has to be quiet. He's talking about when these issues of submission come up, that she's willing to pull her hands back and just trust it to the Lord. Such internal beauty, what does it say there? It's, it's going to be appealing to a husband, but most of all, it is very precious in God's sight. 
Ladies, that's what we're striving for most in our lives, right? To please God. Peter says this is pleasing in the sight of God. Let's read verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter mentions the women of old, and speaking of the Old Testament here, who adorned themselves with this inner beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit. He singles out Sarah, who was the wife of Abraham, um, and how she submitted to him. And I would just point to an example in her life. How Remember how God called Abraham at the very beginning and said, look, I'm going to take you from your homeland, and I'm going to send you to the land of Canaan. This is going to be the promised land. Uh, I can only imagine this is probably where Sarah grew up. She had her family and her roots there, but she was willing to leave where she came from and to follow Abraham to the land of Canaan where they would settle. And of course, eventually that's where the nation of Israel came from. She was willing to follow Abraham in that decision. Also, she calls Abraham Lord. Now, before you men get any ideas here, it is lowercase l. <laughs> and it was also a cultural expression of respect, kind of like sir. I don't think Peter is communicating that this was an expectation for all men at all times. I think it was a cultural way of expressing respect. If you want to try this at home, you're more than welcome to. But I don't think it's going to go very far. <laughs> but I do think that Peter is exalting her in the way she conducted herself. And she is honored by that. Peter closes the discussion by urging the women not to be afraid. They are only to fear God, not people. Why does he say that? Well, again, in Roman culture, wives pretty much, just universally pretty much, uh, applied or excuse me, follow the religion of their husband. I mean, it was just sort of like, your husband's this, then you have to be that, okay? Plutarch was a first century Greek historian. He says, quote, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worship. Peter does not endorse that, does he? This is another case where you're to submit to an authority unless you're called to disobey the scripture. And so if a wife has come to, come to know Christ, she was here in this instance to not do that, to not follow her husband's leadership. She was supposed to fear God and not man, even her own husband, right? She was to honor her husband, or excuse me, her, her Lord over her husband. But she would also have to realize that might bring some frustration by her pagan husband. But she was not to back down. She was to continue to follow the Lord come what may, and by her conduct, again, hope that she might win her husband to Christ. All right. Let's give the men a turn here. Let's shift from the wives to the conduct of the husbands. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I know some of you ladies are thinking, hey, what's going on here? We had seven verses. 
or excuse me, six verses and the men get one verse. That doesn't seem very fair. You are correct, but I would also mention that in Ephesians 5, the other major passage about marital roles, there the husbands get the majority of the focus. So I do think it kind of balances out when you look at both passages. But Peter focuses on two areas for husbands. First, live with your wife in an understanding way. Live with your wife in an understanding way. Well, what does that look like? Well, obviously, much could be said to husbands about the need to spend time with your wife, the need to listen to your wife so that you actually do learn your wife, that you do understand her, you do know how to bless her and so forth. But here, Peter says that we should show them honor. Show them honor. Now again, in the first century context that Peter was writing, these words were incredibly countercultural. Uh, one, one writer says that basically you do not find anywhere in Greek and Roman writings where men are told to honor their wives. Christianity was incredibly countercultural in elevating women here. Peter specifically tells them to honor their wives as the weaker vessel. I think more than likely he's talking about them being physically weaker, physically in their strength. And so husbands were not to go around threatening their wives verbally or physically. Okay? They were not to be doing that. And again, knowing, you might hear that and say, Wow, that's not really a warm fuzzy, Peter, there. <laughs> that's not really Hallmark movie material, you know, about, you know, not just threatening them with abuse and so forth. But let me tell you, this was, again, very countercultural to the society that they were living in. We just, we, we said at the very beginning how uh, women were viewed in general in society. Christianity saying, no, come along and show them honor. It was also just, you know, legally enshrined that men could abuse their wives. It was just understood that men would be unfaithful to their wives with prostitutes, slaves, and, and mistresses. It was just understood. And so then here comes the Christian view. Say, no, we reject all of that. We reject all of that garbage. Show honor to your wives. And don't follow the path of the Roman neighbors there who abuse their wives verbally and physically. Treat them with honor. Don't use what you've been given in your physical strength to be a tool of sin. Show them honor. So Scripture clearly forbids a harsh, domineering husband. And in fact, when you do go to Ephesians 5, it there tells husbands to nourish and cherish their wives as Christ loved the church. A husband should display a sacrificial love that seeks to meet the needs of his wife. Right? I didn't say once, so husbands, you can breathe a sigh of relief there. But you are supposed to meet the needs of your wife. Emotional, physical, spiritual, financial. Peter says to live with your wife in an understanding way by showing them honor. He also recognized the wife as a co-heir in salvation, what he called there the grace of life. 
once again, we see how uh, women are equally valuable to God. They're equal in terms of creation, equal in terms of redemption. And now we see they're equal in terms of destiny. When Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom, right, and he uh, gives us resurrection bodies when we're reigning with him for all of eternity, men and women will be co-heirs with him. So why on earth would you mistreat your wife now? As a final motivation to husbands, Peter warns about their prayers. If you treat your wife with understanding, if you don't, excuse me, treat your wife with understanding as a co-heir, Peter says your prayers will be hindered. Wow. But you know, that really shouldn't be a surprise to us because other scriptures tell us that if, if we have sin in our hearts, that God doesn't listen to our prayers. Psalm uh, 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So husbands, if your treatment of your wife is wrong, today why don't we just make a resolve before God not to make excuses? Don't blame your upbringing. Don't blame the guys at work and how they treat their wives. We need to repent and seek to do what God has called us to do. Treat your wives the way God expects you to do. And treat your wives the way she deserves. You need to take this seriously. Because God takes it seriously. Amen, husbands? As we close, I wanted to speak to those who might be sitting here listening and feeling just kind of discouraged, crushed, seeing their marriage fall short of God's expectations, either with things we discussed today or the other biblical principles. And if we're all honest, living out God's standard in marriage is not easy. It's not easy. So maybe you feel hopeless about your marriage, but I want you to leave today with a a sense of encouragement, and a sense of hope that God can change your marriage. He really can. He can change your marriage. But my advice to you would be to focus less on your spouse. Not saying it's wrong to pray for your spouse, but what you can control is yourself. To focus on yourself and what God has laid out for you. And oftentimes, when we worry about ourselves and we start honoring what God has called us to do, there will be changes in the marriage as it's almost kind of like a domino effect, right? As you change, it can change your spouse. This past week, I read an article. It was called, How God Saved My Marriage. It was written by a guy named Olin Stubbs. He works in college campus ministry. He and his wife are Christians, but they had a terrible first year of marriage. Said basically every day they had a shouting match um, in, their, in their marriage. They were sick of their marriage. Both of them said, you know, I don't believe in divorce, but if I did, right? Eventually, though, Olin made a promise not to criticize his wife for an entire year. If she asked him a question, he would answer it honestly, but he would not seek to uh, initiate criticism to her. When he saw her sin, instead of criticizing, he would just simply pray about it. He says in the article, it was not easy to keep that promise. He wanted to say stuff, right? But he caught himself 
and began just praying about these things. And he noticed that his heart softened toward his wife. And he likewise started seeing more of his own sin. After several weeks of this, his wife was in the middle of rebuking him and stopped in mid-sentence and said, quote, You know, this isn't all your fault. I've sinned too. The marriage started to change. Olin said it took about a year to work through their baggage, including some counseling. But now in the last 15 years, they've gone from wanting to be the, the one to win the argument to being first to repent. Who can repent the first in the first place? He writes, quote, God saved my marriage, not by my fixing my wife's problems, but, my, but by helping me see my own and showing me mercy where I am wrong. Now, I'm not trying to say you go follow what he did, even though it's not a bad idea. But I'm just trying to encourage you that no matter where you stand today with your marriage, to be anywhere on the spectrum, God can change it. But let me encourage you to focus first on yourself and let God start working in your heart and see what might happen in your marriage. Finally, I just want to point to the gospel. You know, to live out this calling that God has given here for husbands and wives, we need the grace of God, amen? When we become a Christian, though, God gives us strength, direction, and a heart that is different and is now willing to forgive our spouse instead of holding it over their heads. That's never happened. Let me point you to Christ this morning. Earlier I mentioned Ephesians 5. There Paul compares the relationship between a husband and wife to, relation, to the relationship between Christ and the church. And in verse 25, Paul writes, quote, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ laid down his life for the church. Why did he do that? We cannot save ourselves. Our good deeds do not remove the penalty of sin. Did you get that? We might do good deeds, but it doesn't remove the penalty of sin, so our sins need to be atoned for. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He atoned for our sins. He did this by dying for our sins, by laying down his life on the cross. He did that. And that's the only way that we're made right with God. And so we need to acknowledge our need for forgiveness. And we need to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God who died on our behalf. And who rose from the dead so that we might have victory. Believe in Christ. Trust in Him today. Turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ. And He will give you a new heart. It will be amazing what will happen in all of your life. And if you're married, to see the changes that God will start working in your marriage. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we come to you today. Thank you for your word. We know that as we've seen these last few passages in Peter, challenging messages for the church, for all of us. We pray that your word would do a work in our hearts this morning. 
God, we pray for grace in our marriages, that our marriages reflect what you have called us to live out. Lord, I pray for wives here today. Pray that these words would sink deep into hearts and minds. Pray for a willingness to honor what you've said here in your word, to submit to their husbands, ultimately realizing that you're submitting to the Lord. Lord, pray for husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way and as co-heirs of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us where we have fallen short in our marriages. We pray that we would not pass the buck. pray that we would not ignore this. pray that we would come clean before you today. And Lord, we pray for the church, our church, to be a place where there is a sense of sharpening each other in our marriages, accountability, encouragement, love, to build each other up. Lord, we pray for your gospel. Someone here today who's never trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Though this message focused on marriage, maybe it hit home about their need to follow you, Lord Jesus, as their Savior and Lord, the one who laid down his life for the church. May they be willing to follow you, follow you, Lord Jesus, as your disciple this day, and never turn back. May today be the day of salvation. We love you, Lord Jesus, so much. Thank you for your goodness and for your grace. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.